Okay, thank you, Marvin. Good morning. You know, for those of you that are just uh, that are just joining us for your first time this Sunday, I'm Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And a couple of things before we get in on, into everything is one is that uh, uh, Mar- Marv mentioned men's breakfast, and we have another men's breakfast coming up on Saturday at what time? 8:30. Saturday at 8:30. And don't let the intimidating rhythmic thing that Marv did to scare you off because, uh, like, I'm one of those, like, single-tasker sort of guys. If you want me to sing or if you want me to, well, the rhythm thing for me, anyway, is one where I have to be seeing somebody doing it, like, in my line of sight or I'm just hopeless. And if I try to do two things at once, like, yeah. So, yeah, thank you. So I'll tell Rachel not to do it at, like, women's ministry stuff, too. So speaking of Rachel, you know, uh, I do want to thank you guys for just being such a great church, because yesterday in one of my like compelling moments, I talked about the branches that fell out of my tree um, in last week's sermon, and two different, by the time I got home, most of the stuff was gone out of my yard, um, and then by the time I came back for our members meeting, the rest of it was gone out of my yard, and so uh, in that random, like, just joking around moment, I got my yard work done, you know, so... <laughs> you know, and she's, she's been gone since Thursday, visiting her mom, and in, um, in Nebraska, and so um, just saying this, I, just, I put all of our laundry out on the front yard. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you can bring it back on Monday, it's fine. So, the, uh, no, but thank you guys in all seriousness for being such a great church with that, and, uh, and that was just such an encouragement to me. So, you know, as an all like joking aside, though, you know, as we get into our text this morning, um, we are in John chapter 18. John's in the New Testament. There's these, there's these four books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you kind of flip back to the last third, um, you'll find the book of John right after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And before the book of Acts, they're all pretty big books, and hopefully that can help you find it. We are in chapter 18 this morning. You know, and last week, what we were talking about besides my branches was... Um, Jesus' prayer for his disciples, it's called the high priestly prayer. And like, his la- like these are really the last words that Jesus is kind of speaking to his disciples that are at least recorded for us in the book of John. And they have some weight because what we'll see today is like it was the, his closing words before he stepped out and went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was going to be betrayed. And he prayed for his disciples, and, and we looked at this over the last couple of weeks, and a couple things that were like really important. He prayed that they would be kept, that God would keep them and protect them in this world because he knows it's a world that's hostile um, to him and to the things of God. He prayed that, and then he prayed that they would all be one. He prayed for their, their unity so that they would be one so that the world may know that the Father loved them and sent Jesus. And that was, what's on, that was what was on Jesus' heart on that night that he was betrayed. And it's similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says this. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is everything that he's accomplished for us. The good news of, of the redemption that we have from sin and from the brokenness of this world. And he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I think some of that, that language even in there of standing firm in one spirit with one mind like speaks to the, speaks to the Roman phalanx and the, the, the discipline of the Roman army as they stood side by side holding their ground standing firm. 
And that's what Jesus wants for us. He wants for us to be unified, to experience the joy and love of his relationship with the Father, and to make that love known to the world around us. You know, as we get into our text this morning, like I said, we're going to be going into the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and we're going to be in John 18, verses 1 through 11. And our text is really going to, going to break out over two things, and I'll talk more about this in a minute, but John really focuses our attention on kind of like one interaction in the Garden. And it's going to break out into two main points. He's going to, he's going to first of all, point us to the fact that, that Jesus is absolutely sovereign, the sovereignty of Jesus. Like, he is absolutely in charge, and even though this world rises up against him, there is no doubt in John's mind that Jesus is the sovereign one. And then he's going to point us also to our safety in Jesus. And so please stand with me as I read those 11 verses, and then we'll pray and we'll get into our, our study together. This is God's word for his church. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons." Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to him, He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these, go, let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slaves and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Jesus, therefore, said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the work of Christ who as Mark talked about, who has carried our shame and our guilt away and is the one that makes us worthy, is the one that makes us new and restores us. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us to get a gl better glimpse of who he is this morning, that you would empower me in, in my inability to be able to seek, speak your word and that you would help us to, to be changed because we invested this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, before we really get into our study, I just want to make a, a couple general comments about, like, the biblical text and about how we approach the text, because um, this story is, I think, a really good example of what I want to talk about, because if, if, you, under, if you know of, like, the, the Bible's, like, depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus went in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's really pretty striking if you think about it, all of the things that John left off of his representation of that time in the Garden. You think about some of the, the more like compelling things, you know, you, it doesn't even tell us what the name of the garden is to begin with, which I think Gethsemane means the wine press, which is interesting. He leaves that off. It doesn't talk about Jesus' prayer. You know, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and, he, and it says that he was praying that the cup that we hear about in the end of this text, but the cup that he, he, was, he was praying that if it was possible that he wouldn't have to drink that cup. But, and we see him in prayer, kind of resign himself to the Father's will as he prays that again and again. And we don't hear about the disciples falling asleep. We don't hear about Judas kissing him. You know, all of those details are, are missing. 
And I think it's interesting because oftentimes when we come to the Gospels, we think we're like an investigative reporter. And, it's our, and, and that these are just random testimonies. And it's our job to gather all the, the testimony, get all the details, and then put it together into what really happened. You hear what I'm saying? Like, oh, like John's missing some things, so I better import some things from Matthew and Mark and Luke so I can get a fuller version of the story. And, and, and sometimes that's useful. But I, want to, I just want to say something. Like John's like, depiction of, the, of what happened in Gethsemane isn't just a random, like, these are the details I can remember sort of account. The details that he includes and the details that he leaves out are because John is not just giving a, a personal testimony. He's giving a personal testimony with a theological point. The Gospels are that. Like, they write these things to communicate something specific about who Jesus is. And if he left details off, it's because they're not relevant to his point. And if he highlights some details, it's because they are. And I think you're going to see that here because what, what this text does by stripping away all of those other details is it's like the spotlight focuses on just that interaction with Jesus and the crowd that came to arrest him. And John wants us to learn a couple things just from seeing that moment and nothing else. So as you go to the Gospels, like one of the questions you should ask yourselves is like, oh, what is this writer trying to communicate to me in this story and not be necessarily distracted by everything else that, that they left off because they left it off because it wasn't important to their point. Do you guys get that? And I hope you'll see that. I think I, when I, I wish I was more organized in my life because I would write this down as one of those passages to illustrate that point. It's probably the best passage I know of to illustrate that point, like if I'm training people how to study the Bible, but by the time I go to that training, I'll forget that that was the one. So if you remember me, uh, if you remember, if you're in sitting in that training, you can say like, oh, I know this great example. Um, and I'll be like, wow, that was so like compelling. I should have thought of that. Uh, so let's look at what John does tell us, starting in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, he went forth for his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, um, and he himself entered, and his, oh, and there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. So, you know, outside of the city of Jerusalem, it, um, between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of, Mount of Olives is, is the Kidron Ravine, and Jesus would, was walking through there in the dark of night, and he was going up into the garden. And interestingly enough, the, 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 the journey that we're going to take through the Gospel of John, beginning here and ending on Resurrection Sunday in John 20, like all of the events that happen over these next few days are framed in scenes in a garden. There's scenes in this garden, and then there's scenes in the garden where Jesus' tomb was, where he was buried. And I don't know quite what to make of that. Maybe I will after I'm done teaching the book and you'll miss out, you know, but, but possibly it's just because there was two gardens and Jesus happened to be there. Or, or possibly John's like highlighting the gardens a little bit just so that, to think about that other garden where like Adam didn't honor the Lord. And here Jesus in the crucible of the things that he was going to face completely honored the Lord. I don't know. But, but our journey is going to begin and end in a garden. And they enter this garden with his disciples and then it, then it highlights Judas. And Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with the disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Some of your translations just read like the Roman band 
or the Roman, does it say band in your translations? These guys didn't have trombones or anything. Um, the word is actually literally cohort. It's a, it's a military term, and it represents one-tenth of a Roman legion. And one-tenth of a, uh, the Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers, and so a cohort was 600 soldiers. So Judas, in his attempts to betray Jesus, somehow got permission to go to the Roman cohort, and, and they dispatched 600 soldiers to go arrest Jesus. In fact, we see down in verse 12, it says, so the Roman cohort, that's that same word again, and the commander, that's the word chiliarch, which means a commander of a thousand. So not only was there a Roman cohort of 600 men, but they brought along some of the like, like higher ranking military officials to this, to, this, uh, to this scene. But it's not just them, it's the Romans. And then we say, and the and the chief priests, it says, and the officers from the chief priests. So the chief priests were those who had like jurisdiction over the temple. They kind of represented the formal religious like presence of the nation of Israel, and they had their own temple guard. And so not only were there 600 Roman soldiers, but there was the temple guard that was dispatched with them representing the chief priests and some of their other officers. We find out that some of their slaves are there and other things. And then it says, and the Pharisees were also there. The Pharisees were those who kind of like had the domain of the synagogues. They were like kind of the popular, they were kind of like the popular religious guys of the day. The chief priests were like the formal ones. The Pharisees were like more tied to the synagogues. And so here you have in this, in this like band of people to come to arrest Jesus, hundreds of soldiers, the temple guard, the Pharisees, and maybe even the worst part about it all, Judas himself, who was one of the 12. And then it, John includes this interesting detail in, at the end of verse 3. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It made me think of um, Beauty and the Beast. You know the, right? Anybody else think of that when I said that? Okay, at least three people are as immature as I am. Because there's this scene when they come to destroy the, come to kill the beast, right? And there's this band of people, it's this riotous mob, and the, the lanterns are, ref this is on the animated one, right? I don't, that's the only one I've seen publicly. Um, <laughs> like the lanterns are reflecting off of the trees, and there's, there's this urgency that's coming. Like I think John's trying to create that when he says the lanterns and torches and weapons. They're fully armed. And as this, these hundreds of men like, approach the garden, like you see it in the trees. You see something's going on, right? And then, then listen to these words that John tells us. Verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. So in Jesus' mind, there was, like, there was none of this. Like, oh, I wonder what's going on down there. Whenever there's a traffic accident, you know, like the disciples probably were, the disciples were probably a little bit fearful because there's this crowd coming of soldiers. But Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he knew exactly what was going to happen. In fact, it's in the mind of God from eternity past. He had no doubts about what awaited him. And then look, look what it says. He went 
forth. See those two words? There was no like cowering behind the trees. There was no like running the other way. There was nowhere, like, there was none of that. Like he sees them coming. So what does he do? He takes the initiative and he goes out and meets them. Tells us something about Jesus. So he's there with the 12 and he goes forth to meet them. And, he's, and he said to them, whom do you seek? He knew already, right? Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Well, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus is his like birth name. So like when you hear like Lord Jesus Christ, like only Jesus is his name, Lord and Christ are different titles that he has, right? But when they call him Jesus the Nazarene, that's like the most human kind of expression you could give him. It was like Jesus from the podunk town of McMinnville. You know, I mean, it's just like anchored in like his hometown, his human name. He's just Jesus the Nazarene. We're looking for that guy. There, they answered Jesus the Nazarene, verse 5, and he said to them, I am he. And then it says this, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Like, I don't know if you noticed that, but that phrase there is out of chronological order. Like, John inserts it in there, and it's out of place. Because it, he, he doesn't, like, immediately go into what happened after he said that. He makes the point that Judas was with them. Think about that for a moment. Like the disciples who for, like for years had been walking with Jesus and who had been through like thick and thin together. They were like best friends probably. Jesus earlier in the night had said, one of you is going to be betraying me. And they, were, they had no idea who it was. Nobody suspected Judas. And then all of a sudden this crowd of soldiers came with Judas leading them. And it actually depicts Judas as leading them. He went and got the Roman cohort and took them to Jesus. And they go out and meet him and John wants to highlight to us, and Judas was with them. It's the first they would have known about that. So, like, think about how devastating that would be. You've got every power that you know of, the Romans, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and even one of your closest friends all standing together against Jesus. It's a dramatic scene. And Judas, who was betraying him, was with them. And then it goes on to say, when therefore he said to them, now he's tying it back to what he had just said before, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So this is like incredible. This is maybe Jesus' biggest miracle. Hey, who are you guys looking for? The hick guy, Jesus. I am he. Everybody falls down. What's going on? What I'm going to try to show you is just a little whisper of Jesus' self-revelation was enough to lay waste to those hundreds of men that came to, to arrest him. They drew back and fell to the ground. It's not the first time Jesus used that expression. In fact, back in John chapter 8, turn back with me to John chapter 8. I have these on the screen, but it's always good to use your own Bible. But if you're like John, you don't have a real Bible, you just have a phone. So I'm not going to judge you publicly. Okay. So. 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I hope John knows I'm kidding. So, because uh, he's in charge of men's breakfast and I poison my food. So, but in John chapter eight, Jesus had this long dialogue of 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 like using that same expression, "I am He," which could be literally translated, "I am." But because of the way the Greek works, like they're translating, I am he. He says this. He's talking to people, this crowd, and he says, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So what Jesus had said earlier in the Gospel of John is that, and he doesn't say who the he is. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then a few verses later, I think it's in verse 28, he says this. And Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. What he's talking about there is when he was lifted up and hung on the cross. He says, when you're going to die in your sins unless you see the Son of Man lifted up on the, on the cross and you understand who He is because of what He's revealed. Unless when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And then towards the end of the chapter, he has this verse, which like removes all doubt about what he's talking about. He says this, and I think it's verse 56, 57. Do I not have it in there? Oh, good. More suspense then. Um, 58, John 8, 58. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible story, like when God appeared to Moses on, um, like in the desert, in the, in, the flaming, in the flaming bush, Moses like said, hey, who should I tell the people of Israel who sent me? And Jesus says, tell them I am sent you. And his, his kind of like covenant name of the, of the people of Israel is this play on this, on this name of I am. And yet Moses lived after Abraham so what Jesus, is, Jesus ties his identity in with the God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And then he says, even before Abraham was born, I am. And we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus is eternal and he was with the Father in the beginning. And what Jesus is, what Jesus is making the point there is that unless you believe that he is the I am, unless you see him lifted up on the cross, you will die in your sins. And he is the I am, the covenant God of the nation of Israel and of his people. He is the one who is eternal from eternity past. He is the I am. I am who I am. And that's all he said in the garden. Like, it doesn't say that, like, the heavens opened and, like, glory shone out, that angels showed up. It doesn't say any of that. He just says, oh, I am. Everybody falls over. Like there is just, I don't know what, like, you know, John doesn't tell us, but there is some sort of self-revelation that happens there that causes like those soldiers to be undone. It doesn't say that the disciples fell over. It was everybody that was with them, including Judas. You know, and so there's this, there's this depiction of like what's going to happen to the enemies of Christ when he returns. But this isn't the last time John like has an experience like this. In fact, John has the similar experience himself in Revelation chapter 1. This is a long passage, but look at Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus reveals himself again to, to John. And it says this, and 
He's talking about this vision that he's having, and he says this, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, which is what Jesus often called himself, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair was like white wool, was white like white wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So there's this depiction of Jesus in, in glory, like glowing in like this glowing in his glory with the, his word being like a sharp two-edged sword, holding his churches in his hands is what it goes on to explain it. And let's look at John's response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Like John got a little bit more than they got in the garden and it completely undid him to the point where he was like a dead man. Like unable to, has anybody been so terrified that they're unable to move, unable to like do anything. They're just like frozen there. I see some heads nodding, right? I've never experienced that. Um, just to be clear, no, I'm just um, that was John though. And then Jesus replies to John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And, and, and the story goes on. But when he says he has the keys of death and of Hades, he's talking about like he has all authority over death itself. He has authority over the grave. He is the, the creator and giver of life. There is no enemy that can stand before Jesus, even death itself. You know, so before we go on, let me just talk a little bit about application. About I think one of the things that John wants us to grasp here, this situation right now couldn't get any worse for the disciples. I already said this, but like every like power that they knew of was rising up against them. And sometimes it's easy to feel that way whether it's kind of like globally, Marv talked about like how th things seem to feel out of control, whether it's politically or geopolitically or relationally. It was the Roman legion or the cohort, the Roman cohort and the chief priests and the Pharisees and my own closest friend was rising up against Jesus. And what John wants us to see here, what Jesus wanted his disciples to see, is even just a whisper of how much, how much like, authority he has was enough to like, decimate them. Just by him saying the words with some sort of like, self-revelation, I am. So I think what John wants us to know is that, because this relates to us today, because no matter how dark things get, in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, like, I don't have this on the screen, but in the Gospel of Luke, I think uh, Jesus' words are really interesting. I, I think I have it in my notes. Yeah, Jesus' words are really interesting about how he describes this. He's talking to them in this crowd, and he says this. He says, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. 
So when, if, when you feel like you're in a situation where the hour of calamity has come, where every power in this world is rising up against you and against like the purposes of Christ, when, when it feels like the darkness is going to win the day, John doesn't want us to forget who Jesus is. Because he, he didn't go to the cross accidentally. He went out and met them and surrendered himself to them. It was, his, it was his intention to give himself over. He wasn't captured. He willingly yielded himself to the darkness for you and me. In fact, Jesus had said that back in John chapter 10. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. He has the authority to lay it down. And he has the authority to take it up again. And he lays down his life for his sheep. I just want to make a... Oh, wow, I'm out of time. Um, I just want to make a quick comment. You know, because this is tied back into what Jesus had also said in his prayer. His prayer was for the disciples to be kept and protected, and we're going to see how he protects them in just a minute. His prayer was that they would be one, and we're going to see them scattered. But his prayer was ultimately for God to protect them and unify them so that the world may know that he was sent to do this. And when I say the world, when Jesus says the world, who is he thinking about? Yeah, he's thinking about you and me, anybody that's placed their faith in Christ. Who else? The world. And oftentimes, the reason why I want to bring this up, and I, may, I might have talked about this last week, but oftentimes we think about the world as being everybody like us. Or me specifically, because I'm really what matters. I mean, don't we? But the world includes, like, the young person over at Linfield sitting in the Oak Grove, like dreaming about their future. And it also includes like the homeless person that sleeps across the street. It includes like our Latino like, neighbors. It includes people of different political persuasion than us. Like, Jesus came for the world, and he went out and surrendered himself to the powers of this age for the world, not just for people like us, but for all who would believe in him. The reason why I say that is I think we need, just, we need to be challenged because it's so easy just to kind of sit back and think way too small about the work of Christ. He surrendered himself for his sheep that he brought from far off into his kingdom. But in his surrendering to them, he also saves his disciples. Look what happens next. This is the security we have in him. And this is kind of funny in verse 7. Because in verse 6, right, like the scene ends with all of these hundreds of soldiers falling down at his self-revelation after he already revealed himself to him, And so in verse 7, he says, Again, therefore, he said to them, Whom do you seek? <laughs> you know, they're picking themselves up from the ground. 
right? Probably, you know, who knows what else is going through their heads. And he's like, wait a minute, like, just to be clear, who is it you're looking for? I think that's kind of funny. We talked about this at staff meeting, and, and you know, one of the suggestions was made, and I think there's probably part of this. Like, Jesus was giving them a chance at self-reflection. Like, hey, you guys just got knocked on your butt, right? Like, so who is it you're looking for? Maybe you should think about this for a minute. Jesus the Nazarene, the hick dude from Nazareth. And Jesus says the exact same words, I am, but he doesn't do the self-revelation. But then he says this, and I think this is probably the primary reason why he's doing it. He says in verse 8, I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. And then John gives us a commentary on it. That the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. He had just prayed that. John's referring back to the prayer in John 17 where Jesus is talking to the Father and Jesus says, like, I've kept them in my name and I haven't lost any of them except for Judas that the scripture may be fulfilled. It's all part of the plan. And so what John wants us to see is that Jesus, by, by kind of forcing them to narrow the scope of their search to him, is in this, simultaneously like saving the disciples and setting them free and protecting them. He's doing what he had said he had done their whole life for them in that moment. Let these go their way. Like there is this, Jesus cares for his disciples and seeks to protect them. And then Peter, you know, who earlier in the night had said to him this, he says, when Jesus said he was going to be leaving, Peter says this in John 13. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Will you lay down your life for me? But Peter apparently wanted to be good to his word, so even after Jesus like, tries to secure their release... Because it's after that, because look what it says. And when Jesus had said that, Peter takes out his sword, goes for the head of the high priest's slave, takes off his ear, and apparently, and we're going to see this later on in, in, in chapter 18, like somebody in the disciples' group knew the, the high priest's household. They probably knew who that guy was, because they know his name. His name's Malchus. And Peter lops off his ear. Another detail that's missing. Doesn't talk about Jesus putting it back on. I think what, what John wants us to feel the weight of is like, probably when Peter drew his sword, 600 other swords also came out. And blood had just been spilled. And the disciples, like, are at risk. Like, I think John wants us to see the risk that the disciples were facing in that moment by being allied with, allied with Jesus. And yet Jesus, like, specifically narrowed their search to him so that he could set them free, so he could give his life for them and not the other way around. And he did it in the most surprising way, and he points us to that. Look what he says at the end, verse 11. Jesus therefore said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? 
So it doesn't, you know, John doesn't show us the anguish of Peter wrestling with the, I mean, of Jesus wrestling with the Father around the cup, but it shows Jesus' resolve, like he's the one that went out to meet them. He's the one that could have just undid them, like molecularly. And yet he willingly took the cup that the Father had given him to drink and drank it. Like, what is that cup? You know, it's, this cup is spoken of and through the old, like old and new, old and new testaments. I have one from the old, one from the new. Listen to what Jeremiah 25 says. For thus says the, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause the, all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. See, did you hear that? This cup is a cup of God's wrath that Every single nation, if you read that in, John, in Jeremiah, that even the nation of Israel had to drink. It was coming upon all nations, this cup of wrath. Revelation chapter 16, this is the vision that John was having at the end of his life. And Revelation 16, 19, the great city was split into, split into three parts. There's this vision that John's having. And the cities of the nations fell. Again, it's all nations. Babylon the Great was remembered for, before God to, and it's talking about like Babylon the Great represents like the, all of the false worship of all of the nations to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Like the, the cup that the father was, gave the son to drink was the cup of his wrath mixed and full and Jesus drank it down completely for us. Shall I not drink the cup? And in so doing, like his, his protection of the disciples in the garden here just foreshadows what, what he's doing for all eternity. Like he protects his disciples, he saves his disciples, and what he ultimately saves them from is the wrath of God that's coming upon this world. The judgment of God that we rightly deserve. In fact, Jesus talks about the security that, that we have in his hand back in John chapter, I believe it's John chapter 10. This is this is shortly after he says that he willingly lays down his life for a sheep. And then he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. That's like echoes that I am statement again. What Jesus is saying by his authority and his power and by the Father's authority and by the Father's, Father's, I'm talking gibberish now, Father's authority and power, that we're held in the hand of Jesus and the life that he gives us is eternal. And no one will snatch us out. The disciples here just become this picture of what Jesus is doing for his church. You know, so as we wrap up, Marv, you can come forward and get ready to close us, but I don't know, like the burdens that all of you are here with this morning, but this world is broken and in need of redemption, and we all come here with burdens and brokenness and sorrows, and, and sometimes like our lives feel like everything is out of control. John wants us to see that Jesus never is out of control that he's the sovereign one, that he has the keys of death and Hades, that 
He has, he has authority over every nation. He's coming back to judge. And he drank the cup of God's wrath so we could be set free and made secure in him. So I just want to like, try to encourage you in that moment. I don't think the disciples like, made sense of it until later. I encourage you in that moment to like, continue to trust Jesus wherever you might be because he's not out of control. He's always in control. You know, you, you can, I think you can have confidence in that day of judgment too because I know you can if you believe, belong to Jesus. You can have confidence in the future and standing before the Lord one day because no one is going to snatch you out of his hand if you genuinely belong to him. I'm going to just detour here a second. I was at the Sistine Chapel a few years ago, and we were getting this tour, and there's, the picture, there's this picture of Christ's second coming behind the like, podium or the platform at the Sistine Chapel. Everybody like, thinks about the fingers on the roof. The more compelling thing was this second coming thing because it shows people being dragged down into the into like hell. It shows other saints coming up there and it shows like all of these saints who had been martyred, like holding the, holding the like instruments of their torture and death. And they were all like with Jesus, like up in heaven. And they all had these concerned look on their face. I think it was a, I think, I think Michelangelo was trying to depict the, like we're, we're in Revelation 6 where the, the saints are like complaining to God saying like, how long, O Lord, holy and true, are you going to refrain from judging and avenging our blood? because they're all martyrs. But the tour guide said this. The tour guide said, oh, do you know the looks of consternation on their faces? Can you give me a look of consternation? Yeah. <laughs> it's because it's the second judgment, and not even the saints are confident that they'll stand in that day. And that is the biggest heresy of heresies. Right? Because we don't, like Mark talked about it, we don't stand because of our righteousness. We stand because of the blood of Jesus Christ and him alone. Like, he is the one who holds us in his hand. He is the one that drank the cup of God's wrath for us. He is the one that set us free. If you belong to him, you can have confidence to approach the throne of grace so you can receive grace and mercy in your time of need. You know, it should give us our, and it should lastly just give us passion for his mission because he he willingly went out and offered himself for the world. For people like me and like you and not like me and not like you. And so if we have the heart and mind of Jesus, we, I think we'll go out and do the same thing. So Mara, why don't you close us and I'll close us in prayer.